Morning, church. If you're a guest with us this morning, my name is Kelly. I serve as senior pastor. I've met several guests this morning. Glad you're here. Hope you feel quickly at home at Glowing Bible Church. We'd love to give you a gift. It's a little book I've written. It talks about our focus as a church, helping people follow Jesus. You can pick it up at the Welcome Booth, which is out in the Welcome Center, the large atrium just off the parking lot there. Grab yourself a copy. It'll help you get to know us a little better. This morning, we continue in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. We've been in chapter 5 for several weeks now. Chapter 5 is revisiting the Ten Commandments, first addressed in Exodus chapter 20. The Israelites are getting ready to go into the promised land, and Deuteronomy is a, a revisiting of the law as a, frankly, a best preparation for receiving the inheritance promised to them as God's people. Moses revisits the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5. This morning we're on the Seventh Commandment. It's on the screen. It's pretty straightforward. You shall not commit adultery. I know that we may have children in worship with us. For parents wondering, how in the world will I explain this in any detail over lunch this afternoon? I would encourage you to restate it in the positive. A child-friendly version of the Seventh Commandment restated in the positive might go something like, you shall keep your promises to your spouse. Even children can understand that married couples have made promises to love one another exclusively, and that a promise made is a promise that should be kept. For that matter, when people get married today, both Christians and non-Christians alike, I should say, they do so by and large out of a desire for a monogamous experience, that is, a promise-keeping experience. And the seventh command is God's directive to do just that, to keep your marital promises. After all, even those with the most permissive sexual ethic agree that some behaviors are right, some behaviors are wrong, and that breaking a promise of sexual exclusivity is in fact wrong. Interestingly though, interestingly in that light I should say, the seventh commandment is in fact a command that those outside and inside the church can affirm. You should keep your promises. You should not commit adultery. In fact, adultery is so widely recognized as wrong that there's a cable show dedicated solely to exposing those who fail to keep their promises. Maybe you've seen it, it's called Cheaters. I won't ask if you've seen the show. But the notion that in our modern world, anything goes sexually is not actually a description of the reality in which we live. That's factually not the world in which we live. If it were, then a show like Cheaters wouldn't exist. It's not the case that everything goes. Now, do people often lack the discipline needed to live up to their own sexual ethics? Yes, absolutely. I'm not pretending that everything is going smoothly in the world. People commit adultery all the time. But everyone agrees it's wrong. And for that, I give thanks. I'll give you another reason to give thanks. No one in their right mind these days is saying it's okay to force yourself on somebody. Again, even the most sexually liberal agree that mutual consent is a necessary element of sexual morality. That's what the Me Too movement is all about. It highlights that even within a culture 
of sexual permissiveness, there are still power dynamics that make sexual experiences inequitable. And for that reason, consent is needed before contact is made. This is good news because it means that what happens in Vegas doesn't actually stay in Vegas, not if you forced yourself on somebody. And for this, again, I give thanks. So fidelity and consent are both embraced in the broader culture, both inside the church and outside the church. And even beyond consent, there is a growing movement within the broader secular culture to acknowledge that consent, while certainly necessary, may at times be insufficient in some cases to help us navigate certain situations. And some are searching for a grander ethic, uh, an ethic greater than, more beautiful than, simply fidelity and consent. Why? Why are some looking for a grander, more beautiful ethic than simply fidelity and consent? Well, many are recognizing that it's entirely possible for two adults to consent to activities that are harmful to themselves as well as to others. In fact, the internet is full of images and videos and opportunities for consenting adults to do damage to each other. An Atlantic Magazine article, this is a secular uh, journal, bemoaned as much recently. The title of the article is The Problem with Being Cool About Sex. Note the title, there's a problem with being cool about sex. That is to say, there's a problem with the notion that anything goes and everything is okay. The author readily admits, in fact, that there is a cultural disconnect between what is good for us, if you're reading the byline, that is what we should want and what we do want. Even the byline admits that the sexual revolution hasn't produced the freedom and the joy that it promised to produce. In short, the problem, even among those who are being cool about sex, is that the author points out, we desperately need an ethic that reaches beyond, reaches beyond condemning crimes committed and consent gained. The details in this article are graphic. It's not for the faint of heart as the author in this Atlantic article does a deep dive into the world of pornography and the sex work industry. She writes in the article, our language, her point is our ethic. We lack certain verbiage. Our language still lacks the words to describe the many varieties of bad sex. Unwanted sexual experiences is the author's point that don't rise to the criminal standard of rape and assault. In other words, there's a lot of really bad experiences that consenting adults are participating in and shouldn't. They're not productive. They're not helpful for humanity. Again, this is a secular journal article. An example of what might be defined as bad sex As one example, take now the infamous Ashley Madison website, whose sole purpose is to help married people break the seventh command. 
75 million subscribers, notwithstanding. There is a growing recognition that simply because two adults consent to it doesn't make it right, doesn't make it harmless. I'd go so far as to say, and you might be saying, well, if 75 million people are subscribing, are we sure it's wrong? Are we sure it's ethically wrong? And I would point to the simple picture. They know it's wrong. They know it's wrong. There's a disconnect between what we should want and what we do want. After all, what about the feelings of each of their spouses? Again, even among the most liberal, there's a growing desire for something more that can guide the way, something better and more beautiful. What might that be? I'd suggest mutual benefit. That is an ethic that goes beyond simply willingness, are we consensual, and considers what is in the best interests of all involved, what's in the best interests of the broader community. Now, admittedly, folks within popular culture are a long way from defining mutual benefit as sacrificial love and selflessness, which are defined in Scripture. But at least there's an admission at least there's an admission that two consenting adults can do immense damage to one another, which means that people are coming away, coming out of the delusion that if it feels good, do it. I'm not denying that a lot of people still make their decisions based on what will bring the most sexual pleasure in the moment, but fewer are saying that's the best way to make their decision. Increasingly, folks are admitting that what feel good, feels good in the moment may not feel good later and may do lasting damage to those who are involved as well as those who are not involved. There was a recent opinion piece in the Washington Post that wrestled with this reality. Again, this is an opinion piece in a secular, a secular journal. The article is titled, Consent is Not Enough. We Need a New Sexual Ethic. With this, I would agree. The author writes, despite the many and popular arguments that it's only a physical act, she's talking about sex, it is clear to almost anyone who's had it, sex, that sex has vast consequences, some of which can last long after an encounter ends. Over the past several decades, our society has come to believe that consent as a legal standard and a moral requirement could somehow make our most unruly activity more manageable, but it was never going to be that easy. Why isn't it that easy? Why isn't consent sufficient? Well, I would say it's because what Imba points out, sex is more than simply a physical activity. Sex involves every part of our person, and so the ethics that guide our sexual interactions must involve every part of the person. They must run much deeper than simply a superficial call to fidelity and a willingness, that is consent. We need an ethic that addresses the selfishness of the human heart. And for that, we'll turn to Christ and the teachings of Jesus on the seventh commandment. Turn with me, if you would, in your copy of the Scripture to Matthew chapter 5. Follow along as I read Jesus' teachings from the Sermon on the Mount, 
If you've been with us, then you've heard me say this is Jesus' longest recorded sermon in the Gospels. This sermon goes from Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, three chapters long. It's also Jesus' debut sermon. This is his coming out uh, basically as a rabbi and saying, here's my take on the law. And he goes through the Ten Commandments, addressing each of them. Now, the Seventh Commandment. Here's his commentary. Verse 27, Matthew chapter 5. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus addresses the heart in commandment keeping. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Let me pray for, let me pause and, and pray for us. Well, Father, we thank you for your Savior's teaching and that he raises the issue of our hearts. We ask that your Holy Spirit would convict us this morning of sin, as well as the righteousness that is available to us through faith in your Son. Give us soft hearts to receive your word and to respond to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, you may be thinking, how could a teaching that encourages self-mutilation, the cutting off of hands and the gouging out of eyes, ever be from God? Well, remember that Matthews chapter 5, 6, and 7 make up one really long sermon. And as a singular sermon, these teachings should not be considered as disjointed parts we should see them as a part of a larger whole. So even though we study just the breakout on the seventh commandment today in this single sitting, we should understand Jesus is making an overarching point, which I believe is captured in verse 20 of Matthew 5. There we read, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is wanting to draw our attention to the righteous character required of those who want to be a part of God's kingdom. You know, on a sunny summer Sunday morning, you've made it here this morning because presumably you want to be a part of the kingdom of God. You want to know what does God expect of me and how can I honor God with my life? Perhaps you've not yet made a decision to trust in Christ this morning, and you're here checking out the claims of Jesus. Welcome. Glad you're here. We'd urge you to trust in Christ this morning. Begin the journey of trusting in his righteousness and not your own. So this is a part of a larger sermon. Jesus' point is that a righteousness that is far more than simply a superficial keeping of the law is needed. A righteousness of the heart is needed. Everyone knew the seventh commandment in Jesus' day, especially the Pharisees, especially the scribes or the teachers of the law. 
And they worked diligently not to physically commit adultery. But Jesus is pointing out that righteousness is about far more than simply avoiding physical contact of a sexual nature with a woman. He's calling us to more than simply an outward keeping of the law, but an interior transformation. I'd summarize it this way. Jesus is calling us to a righteousness of inward reality, our inward transformation, a righteousness in which the lust in our heart is addressed. So just as we learned two weeks ago with the sixth commandment, don't murder, simply because you've never physically taken someone else's life does not mean that you haven't sinned with murderous thoughts or murderous feelings of hate. Similarly, the fact that we do not commit adultery with our bodies and another person does not mean that our relationships are as they should be or even that our feelings for others and our thoughts of others are appropriate and God-honoring. Jesus' point is that lust originates in our heart, fuels the actions of our minds, our bodies, our eyes. There are few who have not at some time or another engaged in this type of sin, a sin of the heart with regard to lust, a lingering stare, a longer fantasy. This type of behavior has no doubt been a part of humanity since the beginning of time. And Jesus is teaching here that any person who cultivates lust in this way has a problem that runs much deeper than just the skin. They may not be acting on the sin outwardly, but still sin is present in the heart and it threatens our entrance into heaven. It's no small matter. Jesus brings up hell in this passage. Paul reiterates it in Galatians chapter five. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Here's what the sin nature, the flesh longs for, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery. He goes on to give a laundry list of other sins. He says, I warn you as I did before, that those who live like this, who continue in this behavior, who choose this method, this this direction in life, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so Jesus offers a prescription of sorts. It's a fairly radical prescription. One aimed at addressing the heart, I would say, by humbling us physically, that is gouging out our eyes and cutting off our hands. Remember, this is Jesus' debut as a preacher. He wants to get people's attention, the listener's attention, right? I wonder if the disciples, those who had decided to follow him, had second thoughts after hearing this prescription. I wonder if if they thought, gosh, maybe holiness is a higher bar than I can achieve. Holiness means not simply committing adultery physically, it means preventing myself, if need be, from doing so internally, with my mind, with my feelings, taking steps that are radical, even gouging out eyes, cutting off hands. Is Jesus really saying though that self-mutilation is needed to secure our place in heaven? Is that the primary takeaway? If you've grown up in the church, then you've probably heard some harsh applications of this passage. 
I grew up in the church. I heard applications like, it's better to suffer physically in this world than eternally in the next. In other words, we should take drastic action to physically limit lust in our lives, which is of course true. We should take drastic actions to physically limit lust in our lives. It's true that physical adultery starts with an internal reality. This is true. We think it before we act on it. And we need to be careful about what we're cultivating in our heart. We should guard our hearts by setting up physical barriers in our, in our lives. I do that type of work. It's true that discipline is a part of discipleship. Same root word. Disciples are those who are learning from Jesus and discipline is a part of discipleship for sure. Taking physical steps to guard our minds and our hearts against lust is important. But if we're not careful, we could easy, easily conclude that physical barriers might even mean taking the, the extreme step of gouging out our eyes and cutting off our hands. Is that what Jesus is suggesting? I would say no. Jesus is not really calling his followers to self-mutilation. Physical discipline, absolutely. Paul writes, train yourself in godliness, discipline yourself. Physical discipline, absolutely, yes. Self-mutilation, no. How do I know that? Well, I think we can know that any number of ways. For example, none of the 12 disciples report having been, having gouged out their eyes or cut off their hands. Certainly those 12 men struggled to some degree with lust, I would assume. Yet the New Testament has no reports of anybody doing this, in fact. I should also say we know this because just running a simple test, do this later today, of closing your eyes doesn't eradicate lust from your heart. We still have our imaginations intact, even when our eyes are closed. So what is Jesus up to? Why talk about self-mutilation? What else is going on here? What might Jesus' point be? Might it be that Jesus wants us to feel overwhelmed by our powerlessness against sin? If you feel overwhelmed by your powerlessness against sin, praise God. Praise God. Because that matches with the balance of the New Testament. It might be that Jesus wants to raise the bar on the seventh commandment. You've heard it said, don't commit physical adultery, but I'm telling you, you even look on another person with lust. You've committed adultery in your heart. Might it be that Jesus wants to raise the bar on righteousness? I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees who worked really hard and the teachers of the law, the scribes who knew the law of God and the expectations of God backwards and forwards, if your righteousness doesn't surpass theirs, you'll not enter into the kingdom of heaven. The bar is much higher than you realize, folks. Might it be that Jesus wants to overwhelm us? I believe Jesus' point is that there are limits to the value of our physical discipline. 
Should we be physically disciplined? Should we train ourselves in godliness? Absolutely. Will we be able to merit heaven in this way? Never. No. Because the locus of lust is much deeper. We need a heart transplant. We need what the prophet Ezekiel promised would be offered through the Messiah, a heart of flesh, a soft heart. He'll take our heart of stone and give us this heart transplant. We are selfish to the core, which means that we need something that will address, or we need someone to be, put a finer point on it, that will address sin at the deepest part of our being. In short, the call to fidelity, keep your promises, it's valuable, it's good. It's a reflection of the character of God. The seventh command is, is a reflection of the person of God who always keeps his promises. The seventh command is a, a failsafe for the people of God through whom he would bring the Messiah. Keep your marital vows because I want to bless all the people of the world, all of the nations of the world through Israel. So keep your marital vows. There's gonna be one who comes through Israel through the marriages of Israel. So keep your marital vows that will save my people from their sin. Are you following me? Fidelity matters in salvific history, in redemptive history. So keep the seventh command. Fidelity matters. Consent matters. But selfishness in our hearts has to get addressed. And until someone addresses the problem of sin in our hearts, we'll never act with mutual benefit. We'll never consider the needs of others when we move towards them until someone deals with the selfishness in our hearts. When the Apostle Paul realized the situation of what needs to take place, he cried out in Romans 7, wretched man that I am, who'll rescue me? Who'll rescue me from this body of death? because gouging out my eyes and cutting off my hands is not going to get at my heart issue. It's a rhetorical question, who will deliver me? He answers it, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Righteousness comes only as our hearts are changed to desire what God desires, abhor what God abhors, it's only possible as we confess our place as sinners and ask God to do what only he can do to change our appetite for sinfulness. So what's our takeaway? I would suggest a couple. It's to understand that the kingdom of heaven is out of reach physically. You should be, appropriately so, completely overwhelmed by sin in your life. That's why Christ came. Because apart from him, we can do nothing, John 15. Apart from him, we can do nothing that's righteous, that's good. Any good thing that's happening in the world is because of the presence of God, his sovereign, superintended presence among us. Apart from him, we can do nothing. We should be overwhelmed 
by the sin in our lives and cast ourselves wholly on the grace offered towards us in Christ, depending solely on the righteousness of another man, not on our own righteousness, because our righteousness has to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law if we have any hope of being eternally with our Creator. Cast yourself on the righteousness of Christ who offered himself as a substitutionary atonement, taking our place in death, then being raised from the grave so that he can give us eternal life. So if you're overwhelmed by your sinfulness this morning, praise God for the grace he's offered us in Christ. And if this is the first time that the grace of God and the need for Christ to come has made sense to you, then speak with God about it. Tell him, I see my need for a heart transplant. I see that the sin runs much deeper in my members than simply physical discipline will fix. And entrust yourself to Christ. Secondly, I'd say if lust is growing in your life and you have long since trusted in Christ, don't stop, don't stop trusting. If you've committed adultery and in a room this size, many have, both in thought and in deed. If you've committed adultery, if you're in the middle of committing adultery, if you're lusting after others, don't stop trusting in Christ. He can do for us through his spirit what we are unable to do. Apart from him, we can do nothing but through Christ we can do all things and we can live free. He can address our hearts. He can move us from selfish and self-interested to selfless and sacrificial in a world that's drowning in sexual immorality. He can change us powerfully. Continue to throw yourself on the grace of God. Continue to trust him. Why? Because God is a perfect promise keeper. He doesn't call us to do anything he hasn't and isn't already doing. He calls us to be faithful to our spouse. And he is a perfect, perfect covenant keeper keeping his promises to us. While we were yet sinners, Christ came and died. Over and over in the Old Testament. You know how the people of God are described? Adulterous. That verbiage isn't coincidental. That's intentional. They walk away towards idols and he runs after them as a perfect promise keeper. He cares for them. And us as a result of caring for Israel, keeping his promise to her so that we could be saved through the Messiah, Jesus. Finally, I would say count on the grace of God, continue to count on the grace of God. I would add in there physically discipline yourself, but don't count on physical discipline as your sole hope. Our hope is Christ in us, not us. The fruit of the Spirit, you know what it is the Spirit's fruit. It's not Kelly's fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is the Spirit's fruit, of which one is self-control. So we need more of the Spirit. That's a good reason to come forward for prayer. Finally, I would say, 
the world is desperately searching for a sexual ethic that makes sense. They get fidelity, and so they, they have cable access shows called Cheaters. They get it. And the Ashley Madison website, they tell you they know it's wrong. They're desperately, they know fidelity is, is the high ground of sexual ethics. They don't know how to get there. And they know consent is appropriate. That's why the Me Too movement's all about. They know consent's value, but they see that it falls short that because two consensual adults can go to the Ashley Madison website and harm the spouses to whom they made promises. And so they need a higher, more beautiful sexual ethic that is of mutual benefit. That's, that is when I move towards somebody, I'm not simply thinking about myself. I'm thinking about them. I'm thinking about us, the community I live in. I'm thinking about my creator. The church has what the world is waiting on when it comes to sexual ethics, when it comes to all moral issues. But the church needs, needs to experience the power of God in this respect so that we can offer it to them without hypocrisy. We need to bask in the grace of God and grow in the, spirit, the, the fruit of self-control, and that we need to hold out the hope that there is a grander, greater, more beautiful ethic available. It was designed by our creator, one man, one woman, for life. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask for your goodness to us. We bask in your grace. We admit that we're sinful. We ask that you would do what only you can do, that you'd grow us in self-control. We ask this for our, only, our own good, and for the good of a waiting world who needs the hope of a Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.